listeners and welcome to the NK News podcast. It's Thursday morning on May 21st, 2020 here in Seoul and joining me via Skype from the USA is my guest today, former commander of USFK, CFC and UNC, General Vincent K. Brooks. Welcome, General Brooks. It's good to be with you and uh, I look forward to having our conversation today. Thanks so much. To introduce you to our listeners, uh, General Brooks holds a Bachelor of Science from the United States Military Academy at West Point, a Master of Military Art and Science from the School of Advanced Military Studies and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, an Honorary Doctor Doctor of Laws from the New England School of Law, and an Honorary Doctor of Humanities from New England Law, Boston. He is a lifetime member of the Council on Foreign Relations. From April 2016 to November 2018, General Brooks was Commander of U.S. Forces Korea, as well as United Nations Commander and Combined Forces Command uh, during a tumultuous time on and around the Korean Peninsula. And that's, of course, the, uh, well, that's how I met you uh, here in Seoul was when you were in that position. That's right. It certainly did. And uh, even though you're retired, you're still quite busy. Uh, General Brooks continues to make contributions as a director of the Gary Sinise Foundation Board, as a director of Diamondback Energy, as a director of the Korea Defense Veterans Association, as a visiting senior fellow with the Belfer Center for Science and Technology at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, as a distinguished senior fellow with the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas, and countless other activities. In fact, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I remember uh, one of the last times that we met in person, uh, it was a reception in late 2017, and that was during the year of uh, fire and fury when there was much talk of uh, a bloody-nosed limited airstrike on North Korea. And when we met at that time, I asked you if April would be a good time to go on vacation because that was the time that was being discussed. Uh, And you laughed and said, it was always a good time to go on vacation. Do you remember that exchange that we had? I do. I do remember that exchange. So one of the enduring questions that comes up when people talk about that period before the 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Olympics rapprochement is how close did we come to some kinetic action? So I, I put that question to you now. It's a, it's an interesting question. I've been asked it many times, and it's not one that's easy to answer. But I'd say close and not close enough. So I, I, I responded somewhat vaguely like that because we did have, without question, very high tension in both countries and in surrounding countries. And we uh, had not achieved the degree of deterrence that we were looking for as an alliance between the US, United States and South Korea. And I would add Japan, for that matter, and much of the international community as we saw two ICBM launches in July and then we're soon to see another one on the 29th of November and we didn't have we didn't have a mechanism of dialogue at that point in time and that's what causes the danger to be the highest when you have strong rhetoric demonstrations of capability an escalating condition without uh, seeming to be mitigated uh, and all the while though our objective, and I think North Korea's also, was to not fall into war by accident, but to see how far each side could go. Uh, The U.S. and South Korea certainly were looking for diplomacy to take its effect and become the choice for North Korea instead of a military choice. Uh, There was talk of of, uh, one of my former uh, podcast 
guests talking to General McMaster's to uh, try to convince the President of the United States indirectly not to call for an evacuation of American non-combatants and dependents from the Korean Peninsula. Was that something that you were aware of at the time, that that sort of talk was going on? Yes, I was quite aware of it and disturbed by it. Uh, I, I thought that that kind of a recommendation needed to come from the theater in place uh, where I could have a pulse on how South Korea felt about it, knowing that there would be consequences to the South Korean economy, there would be consequences to all of the countries who had uh, expatriates in South Korea, and that's uh, that's a great number of people uh, from a great number of countries, and that we should not go into that unless we had really one of two conditions. The first would be that we really needed it because we were about to go into conflict. And I, I didn't sense that we were, but they would have known better than I. But certainly that was not the view of South Korea at the time. So if we needed it because we were going to war, we needed to get people out of the way. Secondly, if we felt we needed that as a demonstration of resolve to raise the, the pressure to an even higher level than it was at that time, knowing that North Korea watched the evacuation of nationals as one of the key signals of preparation for war. So we didn't want to uh, do this without good forethought, knowing that it could be, in fact, the trigger that we were trying to avoid. And so I was uh, very much against uh, these talks about uh, removing foreign nationals and U.S. citizens. And, and the complexities that came with that actually were mounting at that point in time. I mean, for example, what do you do with the several hundred thousand Chinese? And, and what, if, what if, 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 if Xi Jinping says, I want you to send the military in, so send the PLA in to get them out, just as the U.S. president would say, I want a military-supported evacuation. What do we have then? Do we have a third-party intervention at the very beginning of a crisis? Well, what about Japan? Who will evacuate Japan, given that evacuation is a national matter? And we were having these discussions with the Republic of Korea, and I can assure you it was quite complex. No, no, I, I'm sure. The, the last time I recall those kinds of conversations being held were um, uh, in the mid-1990s, uh, you know, when, when uh, uh, President Clinton was talking about uh, preemptive strikes uh, during the first nuclear crisis. Um, are you aware of any similar discussions that have taken place between 90, sort of 94 and, uh, and 2017? Uh, I'm, I'm not aware of any contemplated evacuations. There, there have always been, though, hair triggers that could cause us to go into that. When I was assigned to Korea in 1996 to 1998 as a battalion commander with about 800 troops near the demilitarized zone, we rehearsed the evacuation of U.S. nationals Routinely, and that, that's on a quarterly to semi-annual basis. There was a specific set of exercises that we did, uh, but we were not using it as a deterrence option at that point in time. Uh, neither was it being drawn into rhetoric as it uh, as it was by 2017. And so it was it was a different circumstance to be sure in 2017 than mm. previous times. I would say. Just out of uh, personal curiosity, where were you uh, stationed as battalion commander in 20? Uh, sorry, 96 to 98. Yeah, from 96 to 98, I was at, at Camp Casey in Tongducheon. So that's right. uh, oh, I guess maybe seven to ten miles just below the demilitarized zone. Uh, around the same time period, there, 96 to 97, I was living in Munsan, just a little bit west of Dongduchon. Uh, oh, yes. Quite close to um, uh, Camp Gary Owens, Camp Howes, right. Camp Giant, Edwards, um, uh, Stanton, all those ones that are uh, they're gone now. 
Yes. Well, and you you recall that, especially from 1994 up to 97, and then again in eight, 98 and 99, there was great tension. I, the day I arrived in South Korea, uh, it was in uh, 1996. After the long flight, I really wanted to get off that airplane. I was ready to land. And we came over top of uh, Seoul Kimpo Airport, which was the big one at the time, and orbited for a period of time, almost an hour, over top of the airport. So I figured we had some sort of mechanical problem. And after that long flight, we were about to crash. <laughs> but in fact, they were freezing the airspace because North Korea had a MiG jet defecting at that very moment. So from the moment I arrived, we had tension like that. We had the submarine incident on the East Coast. We had incidents in the DMZ. And tension was very high. Now, uh, actually, a similar incident that uh, Chad O'Carroll, the uh, managing director of uh, NK News, wanted me to ask you was an incident that happened around April 16th and 17th in 2017. Uh, it was an interesting time there regarding airspace as well. Uh, Chad and a bunch of other journalists were uh, at Pyongyang International Airport waiting to fly out of North Korea uh, and were stuck there for about 12 hours with no explanation given about why they could fly out. And apparently, this was around the exact same time that Vice President Pence was at the demilitarized zone doing the cold steel stare across the joint security area near Panmunjom. Uh, now, according to uh, one industry, a tourism industry insider that we talked to, that level of delay experienced at Pyongyang Airport was highly unusual. Uh, and also at the same date, it was reported later in North Korean media, the uh, uh, their Ministry of State Security had warned that the CIA and the South Korean NIS had plotted a biochemical terrorist attack to assassinate Kim Jong-un on uh, April 17th. And the day before, on the 16th, there was that failed North Korean missile test at the Shinpo region. Uh, so the, the question really I, I want to ask is, were there some serious escalations of tensions between the ROC and the U.S. on the one side and the DPRK on the other side that contributed to this unusual events uh, around this time? Yes, there certainly were. Uh, the spring of 2017 was also very tense. We know about the summer of 17 and the fall of 17, the period of, of quote-unquote fire and fury. Uh, but the real tension had been rising in the uh, March to April time frame. We had just seen the change of leadership in the alliance, so the impeachment of uh, President Park Geun-hye, the acting presidency at that time of uh, Hwang Kyo-an, and then the election and inauguration of uh, President Trump replacing President Obama. And this is now in the first three months of all of this. And so it was a very interesting time just be between the two countries in the alliance. And around the March timeframe, North Korea broke its silence. It had been relatively silent since December of 16. And now we started to see activities beginning to e increase, indications of potential nuclear tests, missile launches in greater frequency, different variations of missile testing, the preparation of submarine-launched ballistic missiles. Lots of things are now cooking. And it was indeed a tense time. So I, I was with Vice President Pence at that time at the demilitarized zone. And we had already been visited by Secretary Tillerson, who also went to the DMZ, uh, to Panmunjom, and Secretary Mattis, uh, who each of them on their very first international trip came to Korea, sending a very clear message about the seriousness of the situation to the new administration. The fact that there were no planes allowed to take off from Pyongyang at that time, would that have been because um, there'd been a warning to not uh, put anything in the air while President, uh, Vice President Pence was at the demilitarized zone, or was that completely coincidental? I, I doubt that it's coincidental, uh, but it was not a result of, for example, the Military Armistice Commission communicating 
something to North Korea through Panmunjom saying, hey, let's not have any activity. We did not make such a communication to them. And of course, at that time, they were not answering any calls we made anyway. The first calls were answered in 2018, and that had been a six-year period that we'd had no calls answered. So it was certainly not from that. Whether there was something done behind the scenes, uh, back channels through intelligence channels or or not, I I don't know. Uh, I was not aware of the aircraft being I I was not aware of the aircraft being halted on the ground uh, in North Korea, at least in Wonsan. And I don't think that it's coincidental, but it it, it was no surprise that the vice president of the United States was coming and that he would likely go to to Panmunjom. And so they may have decided that themselves so that there was no uh, situation that could be misinterpreted by the U.S. and South Korea at the time. A bit more of a general question here. So you were in charge of uh, USFK for two and a half years, which is uh, a little bit longish uh, for that posting. How do you feel overall that that period went uh, now that you look back on it? Well, it was a very interesting roller coaster ride. Uh, it was already heating up when I first went into command, and that's part of the urgency to get me there. I, I literally was in Japan on a trip as the U.S. Army Pacific commander, and was ordered to proceed directly to Korea and take command the next day. And so that's what General Scaparotti and I did. There was already tension going on. We, we'd had the fourth nuclear test uh, just a few months before that. The relationship between South Korea and China was now really going sideways and uh, going in a bad direction. We had the Kaesong Industrial Complex having been closed. We were coming up on a year anniversary from the box mine incident and the artillery fired from South Korea into North Korea. And so this was this was a difficult time, and we started seeing an increase in missile testing activity by North Korea, most of which were failures at that point in time. But it was quite clear that Kim Jong-un was willing to fail in his learning in public, more importantly, that he was learning with every iteration, and his scientists were as well. And so uh, that's what it looked like when I arrived in April of 2016, and he did not disappoint. So by the time we got into the first Ulti Freedom Guardian exercise a few months later, it was difficult to tell the difference between the exercise scenario and the real world. Both of them were quite a good shakeout for us and for me as as a new commander there. I want to talk a bit more about exercises later on, but just first of all, uh, still about you coming into the position. Uh, what did you read or watch or listen to to prepare for the job? And I know uh, I just found out that you really only had a couple of hours notice, but uh, in your early days, I suppose, in the first days in the job, what kind of books or things were you looking at uh, to, to absorb to prepare you for the job? Well, I had 20 years of background on it at that point. So my, my two years in command in Korea taught me quite a bit. Uh, first, what it taught me is how little I knew about Korea. And so I became a student of Korean history, of uh, the, the military experiences in Korea pre-World War II, during World War II, during occupation, uh, in the period of liberation after that, after 45, and especially the Korean War and what followed that into the armistice. So I, I was familiar with all of that uh, and uh, certainly doubled down on my my journey of learning as I became the commander of U.S. Army Pacific in the height of the rebalancing of U.S. strategic policy toward the Pacific, and that was in 2013. So I had three years in the Pacific, including eight trips to South Korea and six or seven hostings of uh, Korean leaders in Hawaii or elsewhere uh, in that period of three years. I was very much steeped in what was already happening, obviously with the commander of 8th Army, then, then General Bernie Shampo, uh, lieutenant general, was commanding 
the Eighth Army on the Korean Peninsula. So he's the army commander on the ground in Korea, and I'm the army commander for the theater beyond that. And I had a responsibility to to know what he was doing and support him. Indeed, I took a small element out of my staff in Hawaii, 25 people, and put them into Korea and left them there. So I had a forward headquarters in Korea all that while just so we could see the situation on the Korean Peninsula in what I'll call high magnification. You know, from Hawaii, we can see the entire region, but we can't see with as much fidelity the specifics of what is happening in Korea. Given all the, the learning that you did, and of course your previous experience as a battalion commander and the experience in Hawaii, it almost seems like two and a half years was, a, was too short a period to have you here uh, as, uh, as USFK commander in Korea. Well, I, I feel like it was five and a half years, and it wasn't all in Korea, but it was certainly focused on Korea, and I actively was operating in things like the preparations for deployment of THAAD and uh, the reinforcement of uh, rotational forces into Korea. These things happened on uh, on my watch as the theater commander for the Army, and so it was five and a half years of uh, of activity directly involved with Korea. And, and frankly, that, that worked out very well. I had numerous relationships in place on the day I arrived. The chairman of the Korean Joint Chiefs of Staff, for example, General Lee Soon Jin, and I had already known each other for two and a half years and had you know eaten with each other in several different places. So we knew each other already, and now he's my key counterpart. The same thing with several of the deputy commanders of the Combined Forces Command, uh, I'd known three of the previous ones. As I walked in, we had a new one who I didn't know as well, but then, of course, we became famous friends. So I was no stranger to Korea. They knew me, and I knew them, and that was very beneficial. Now, that sounds like a, an ideal, a very smooth transition. Uh, is that normally how it goes every couple of years ago when the commander changes? Uh, not always. I think this was maybe an unusual circumstance given the depth of experience that I had already had uh, with Korea, and that's coupling not only those five and a half straight years, but the two years prior to that, 20 years earlier. Uh, so I, I, it's not common. Uh, it could become that if we continue to raise people up to the four-star level through the Pacific. Uh, historically, that had been in Europe and the Middle East, and fewer were rising out of the Pacific, given that there was not a four-star headquarters in the Pacific for the Army until my arrival in 2013. And the Prior time for that was 1975, and at that point, with the Vietnam drawdown, much of the headquarters structure for the Army in the Pacific was drawn down. In Vietnam, in Japan, in Taiwan, in Korea, uh, it remained the same, and in Hawaii, it came down. At, at present, we have about 28,500 U.S. troops in South Korea. Just uh, help our listeners to understand why they have to be here now in 2020. Well, let me first uh, clarify the 28,500 number, that number that is often quoted, is the assigned forces. Without getting too pedantic or complicated here, that means there are 28,500 troops and, and units who exist only in Korea. They don't have a home base in the United States. That's what that means. But as I said, when I was the commander in, in Hawaii, we began the process of sending rotational forces to Korea, like we deployed to the Middle East. And central among those was an armor brigade combat team, you know, a tank brigade that has somewhere on the order of 4,400 to 4,800 troops. They're not part of the 28,500. So on a given day, there are more like 32,000 
and sometimes we have uh, upwards as high as about 39,000. So in 2017 and in early 2018, even in the season of summitry, our presence on the peninsula rose up to almost 40,000. Now, to answer the question, why do they need to be there? Well, they don't. But we choose to have them there because it's in our interests to have a forward presence, to have continuity through this relationship that was forged in war with an ally. This alliance is unlike all of the other six alliances of the United States. It's unique. We've never been enemies. We've fought together in war, really, literally saved one another. And that presence has continued in places like Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. So it was, it's a unique structure. And so our presence there is not only about you know, having a thin red line of hate to stop North Korea from attacking again. That really isn't what it's about. There's 620,000 South Korean troops. And trust me, I would be relying heavily on them more so than the American forces in a much smaller number at the onset of a crisis. We would rely on American capabilities and the reinforcement of America's global power and the combat and leadership experience that the Americans bring to bear. And that makes a very strong alliance. But the troops that are out there every day are South Korean troops. So the Americans are there because we have a commitment under our mutual defense treaty. And we have a shared history now that uh, certainly since 1945 has been a continuous presence on the Korean Peninsula. That's why we're there. You rightly raised the point that uh, uh, United States and uh, America uh, and Korea haven't uh, been enemies, uh, and uh, and you've been together, fought together on many battlefields. Uh, but of course, it, it it can always be a difficult thing, I suppose, to just to have the presence of uh, foreign troops on uh, on your home soil. How how's the presence of U.S. troops received by South Koreans these days? What's the feeling about that? Over the long term, I would say that the South Korean body politic has recognized the value of a relationship with the United States and with it, the presence of U.S. forces in Korea. That tends to be somewhere between 45% favorability up to 70 to 80% favorability, which it was in 2017. Right now, it's down some. Uh, there's nationalism that has been engaged both by the United States and by South Korea, nationalism in terms of political practices and decision-making. And that has caused you know, national sentiments and, and, and nationalistic uh, ideations to bring the support for U.S. forces down somewhat. That coupled with issues like the special measures agreement, negotiations that are ongoing, the general security of military information agreement, and other things have put some pressure on the alliance. It doesn't break the alliance by any means, but it does put pressure on it like a couple having an argument uh, in a very close marriage. And it's often like that. So right now I'd say uh, somewhere in the, the 60s is where the favorability rating is. It, but it, it also depends generationally. It depends on what generation you ask. And in, in some ways, I learned this when I was uh, in Germany during the Cold War in the uh, mid to late 1980s, while there was still an active threat, but there had been conditions of peace for several generations, uh, at least on the part of the West Germans, who felt quite a bit of prosperity as a result of that long-term presence. There is something to be said for uh, an enduring presence of military commitment long enough 
for the younger generations to not know why they're there in the first place. And that's actually a measure of success. That's a measure of stability. Now, it has to be refreshed so that uh, the younger generation is reminded of the sacrifices of their grandparents and the, the privation and hardship that the Korean Peninsula, North and South, went through during the Korean War on the tail end of occupation. So we, we shouldn't think that the war by itself was enough. It was The war was finishing off that which was in South Korea and North Korea at the time. And that is not to be forgotten. So the generation that experienced that has a very high favorability of the United States presence and is very conservative. And then with each succeeding generation, they become a bit more progressive and a bit more globalist uh, and a bit more nationalistic from the perspective of, hey, why can't we go on our own here? Why is, why is this UN command still saying who can cross the demilitarized zone? And that has to be explained. And I certainly had that experience uh, as the UN commander. You uh, mentioned earlier the uh, the deployment of the Thad battery to South Korea that, that happened uh, during your command. Uh, that was a, uh, a controversial decision and deployment in South Korea and led to some clashes between protesters and police, as well as China's economic punishment of South Korea for going against its wishes. Uh, why is that so important and necessary in South Korea? And why does it seem to upset China more than North Korea, against whom is, it is supposed to be defending South Korea? I think North Korea found uh, advantage in the fact that there was any kind of controversy at all. And there may even have been some sympathizers with, with North Korea who were participating in some of the civil disobedience, as well as uh, some who were influenced by China. And then there's just outright South Koreans who didn't like the idea, and they have the right to engage in civil disobedience. So I, I would say that we, we and the South Koreans handled this very, very well. Uh, there were no major, there really were no major clashes. There was uh, staged activity. Uh, for example, women chaining themselves to cars as the convoy was coming by with the cameras on them. It, it was intended to amplify a sense of uh, this being forced upon them. But it was always an alliance decision. The decision was taken in the summer of 2016 and the timing was more a function of negotiating for the land. As soon as the land was negotiated, and that was the uh, golf course that had been owned by the Lotte Corporation, once that agreement was made, and the U.S. had nothing to do with that agreement other than saying that it was militarily acceptable in terms of what the land looked like for military purposes, that was the only involvement the U.S. had. The rest of it was between the South Korean government and the Lotte Corporation. So because of that, China uh, decided to put pressure on South Korea and Lotte and essentially engage in an economic attack. They were quite skillful at it. It's interesting, at that time, we were trying to encourage China to be uh, more active in sanctioning North Korea to cause North Korea's behavior to change. And China acted as though they didn't understand what that was about. And then they demonstrated that they perfectly understand as they were very precise in their work against South Korea. Why did it happen? Well, first, North Korea had created a threat to South Korea and to the alliance. It had already threatened Guam with two missile launches that were pointed straight at Guam, overflew the Korean Peninsula, and landed in the, uh, the East China Sea. I'm sorry, the South China Sea. These tests made it clear that we needed to deploy a capability to defend Guam. I was involved in that, deploying the first THAAD battery to Guam. And then North Korea continued to demonstrate missiles, lofted intermediate-range missiles and medium-range ballistic missiles that could threaten the Korean Peninsula. 
And so after a certain series of tests that North Korea did demonstrating that capability, the alliance decided to deploy the THAAD system to provide a broader area of coverage. So that's the bottom line as to why THAAD was deployed and why it was deployed when it was. Unfortunately, and I would this is my estimation here, Xi Jinping received military advice that this was a threat to Chinese second strike capability. And that was a completely inaccurate assessment by the Chinese uh, military to the uh, Central Committee. And she went out early and stated it as such, as a national security concern touching a vital interest of China. Well, he, he then didn't have room to back off of that until his plenum in the uh, November, December timeframe of 2017, oddly enough. And then the positions began to change and an opening began to uh, occur with, uh, with, with South Korea. So China had gone out too soon, too far, and was stuck. The bad deployment to North Korea never had anything to do with China and still doesn't. And, and it's interesting that China complained about the radar that is part of the THAAD battery. And there were, already two, there were already two such radars in Japan. They'd been there for several years at that point. And they were there without the battery. In other words, they are designed to look as far as possible. And they can see into China. And that's not a secret. China knows that. And yet this one that's associated with the battery fundamentally has a shorter range. It's associated with a missile intercept. And thus is not interested in looking into China. And so the, the fact that the complaints came on the battery deployment means that someone didn't understand and gave bad advice to the political leadership and caused them to move. Now, we have to talk a bit about uh, cost sharing and the special measures agreement. Uh, when you were here in South Korea in early 2019, the agreement was made that South Korea would raise the portion of its cost sharing by 8.2% to around 925 million US dollars. This year, they were supposed to negotiate a new figure, but talks broke down and they're at a stalemate right now. In your opinion, what's a fair uh, arrangement? Well, this is a bit like the question of how close to war were we back in 2017. And, and I'm going to give you a bit of a tongue-in-cheek answer. The fair amount is the amount the two sides agree to. It's that simple. You can't have an agreement without it. And once they've agreed, that's what's fair to each side. Right. But we're, they haven't agreed. Clearly, that's right. We clearly are not there yet. And so it's interesting. The uh, 8% uh, on top of where the 2014 agreement went as renewed in 2019, uh, was a stretch. And it took some time to get to that point. I think, candidly, it probably would not have been closed if the Hanoi summit was not on the horizon. So I believe that there was impetus for both governments to close and conclude a deal and not have this between them as they approached North Korea and Hanoi. But that started a new cycle, given that that renewal was a one-year renewal of agreement uh, and that's unprecedented. It's usually a five-year agreement. That opened the door for significantly greater politicization of the negotiating process. And now, unusually, this is not common, the White House and the Blue House are both involved in setting the terms of the agreement, and it's significantly higher than it was before. Now, the good news story here is that there is ongoing negotiation. And South Korea, for example, has already said they would move another 13% on top of the 8.2% of the previous agreement. Uh, that's not acceptable yet to the United States. 
And that means that there still has to be some more maneuvering that's done between the two governments. It's just my hope that, uh, that while this is clearly a transactional discussion, the alliance, in my view, must have greater value than something that can be scored on a balance sheet. That happens to be my view of it, and that may not be the administration's view, and that's their prerogative. They're, they're the administration in power right now. Now, something that happens when uh, when a deal cannot be struck is that uh, a lot of uh, South Korean workers uh, who work for USFK go on uh, an enforced furlough, uh, kind of a leave without pay. And uh, what's happened, I think, my understanding is here in South Korea that the South Korean government has stepped in to, uh, to cover some of those people's salaries. Uh, but still in January, a prominent lawmaker of uh, South Korea's Democratic Party said, it isn't right to hold hostage the salaries of Korean employees and President Trump's unreasonable demand is weakening the alliance. Meanwhile, on the other hand, in the U.S., there's a, a sense among some people in the administration that South Korea is getting a free ride. Do you think either of these ca- characterizations is fair and accurate? No, I think both, uh, both expressions are extreme views that are used for political leverage. The reality here is the agreement gives authority to expend South Korean won. And it gives that authority to the commander of U.S. Forces Korea. Without that agreement, there is no authority for the commander of U.S. Forces Korea to expend South Korean won. Okay, it's very much like a continuing resolution authority in the United States Congress or a National Defense Authorization Act, even better, if we don't have a continuing resolution authority. If there's not an authorization act and if there's not an associated appropriation, And if there's not, as an alternative, a continuing resolution authority, then there is no authority to obligate. So the CRAs, the continuing resolution authorities, grant authority to obligate. And there's usually some sort of limitation on it. For example, we went several years like this and had to furlough U.S. workers also. And I, I had to experience that as a senior commander. And we were allowed to have no new starts compared to a baseline. I think it was 2012 was the baseline year. Well, that's a very difficult circumstance to be in, but that was an authority to expend. Had there not been a continuing resolution authority and also not the renewal of a National Defense Authorization Act and associated appropriation, then the government would have shut down, as it did for a few days in, what, 2015 or 16. So we have to understand it that way. This is not about holding hostage a set of workers. This is more about there is no obligation authority belonging to the U.S. Forces Career Commander, and he has to cease activities in the three categories which had been authorized by the agreement. That's labor, uh, labor cost share, logistics cost share, and South Korean-funded construction of U.S. military of U.S. military resources. And these three categories all must stop if there's not an agreement. And it's unfortunate that they got to this point. But the the commentary out there by members of the National Assembly and and, uh, commenters in the United States body politic are not helpful in terms of uh, actually moving toward resolution for a fair amount that both sides agree to and find beneficial. Okay, moving away uh, from cost sharing, how is the alliance affected by the reduction in the number of exercises that the ROC and uh, USFK uh, jointly do each year? Uh, what is principally affected by first uh, President Trump's announcement of uh, curtailing the upcoming Ultra Freedom Guardian exercise in 2018, which he stated at the uh, Singapore summit, 
the first effect of that is one of our best exercise environments, our best crucibles for learning uh, had to be adjusted. It doesn't halt completely. What ends up happening is we don't provide the funding, again, to the funding issue, to bring all the players that would be involved in that, external observers, augmentees, reserve forces who would be called to, to serve in a time of war. All of these players come together to exercise decision-making at multiple echelons of command and leadership. Okay, so these are not field maneuvers. They never were, and they aren't. We weren't canceling field maneuvers. But we were canceling, in that case, a command post exercise, which exercises leadership and decision-making. And and wonderfully, in South Korea, that includes all the way up through the South Korean national government. The U.S. tends to participate with role players for the governmental levels above Pacific Command, so the Joint Chiefs of Staff, for example, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, and the Office of the President, those players are role-played, and that's part of what we would pay for in an exercise. You pay for role players. So the quality of the training environment is what is impacted. The ability to still train on standing operating procedures that the South Koreans and Americans have worked out together to do leader training and work through issues is still there. And so we, we trained that way in the fall of 2018 while I was still in command. And I know my successor, General Abrams, and his Korean counterparts in the Joint Chiefs and in the this Combined Forces Command have also found ways to train. So to get the answer to the question, there are some impacts in the keenness of the edge that is honed by these exercises. It is nevertheless a sharp sword that remains in readiness. I described it in 2018 as, hey, for the sake of diplomacy and room for dialogue that can ultimately lead to a peaceful and prosperous nuclear-free Korean Peninsula, we must take some prudent risk. And that prudent risk is taking a little bit of the keenness of the edge off and sheathing the sword for a period of time if we're told to do so. Recognizing that the military is an instrument of policy and the policy of the alliance is what is in play here. Now, having said that, every commander at every level in every professional military, and certainly the South Korean military and the United States military in the strong alliance, every commander will constantly look for other ways to use whatever resources available, whatever time is available, and train to get better at something that they need to be ready to do. Now, North Korea accuses the uh, the combined military exercises of being a, a rehearsal to launch an attack or invasion against its uh, its territory. While you were commander, were invitations ever extended to the Korean People's Army to observe exercises in the South? Um, we did not invite them to observe. We considered that. And if the relationship had continued to improve, uh, that was an option laying on the table. But we always had the Neutral Nations Supervisory Commission, which is a, a structure under the armistice agreement. North Korea has walked away from their side, which had been uh, Poland and Czechoslovakia. Poland now operates in concert with the other two who had been observers from the south. And they have full access to everything in exercise to ensure that it is consistent with the armistice and is not a rehearsal of war. And so this is, uh, this is North Korea's view. It's part of their stated rhetoric. It's not to be taken seriously. North Korea knows what the exercises are, and North Korea continues to conduct exercises itself. 
at a greater rate than South, than South Korea and the U.S. has. General, what role do you envisage for, uh, envision for the United Nations Command in the future? I, I believe that United Nations Command, or UNC, is a key player in transitioning from the current condition of armistice to an enduring condition of peace. It was already instrumental in enforcing the armistice and preventing a resumption of war. Uh, I believe the command deserves great credit for that and great exercise of restraint over many years, including ones of uh, lethal engagement by North Korea. So first, it has been the keeper of the armistice. Second, it has been and remains the home for international commitments in a time of crisis. There has always been an international presence under UN command. It remains so even today. And the UN commander still meets with ambassadors of the original sending states, United Nations sending states, and several of the countries, I think six countries, retain staff inside of the United Nations Command headquarters. But the third role is the one that has emerged in this recent time, and that is being really the, the guarantor of discussion and negotiation, a facilitator of sorts. The first North Korea-South Korea summit, for example, between Kim Jong-un and President Moon Jae-in was not accidentally at Panmunjom. It's where they wanted it to be, but it was enabled by United Nations Command. And the UN Command had the option to say no. The same thing with the Comprehensive Military Agreement. UN Command was involved in that in discussion with South Korea to ensure that the key equities that preserved and enhanced the armistice were included in negotiations that were happening between North Korea and South Korea, and they're now codified in the Comprehensive Military Agreement, which, in my view, as the commander at the time, enhanced the quality of the armistice. Going forward, to move from what is fundamentally a military relationship, and that is the armistice, that is what governs international relations on the Korean Peninsula now, to move from that to normalized diplomatic relations requires a transitional process it might even require international observers, military observers, to verify things like the demilitarization of North Korea and South Korea, if that, if that is a, an agreement that's made, at the very least associated with the nuclear and missile capabilities of North Korea. I, I would like to see the United Nations itself engage more actively with its offspring. This is a child of the United Nations Security Council. That's where the command came from. And it was immediately passed like an adopted child or an orphan passed to the United States to raise. And the United States has been the caretaker for UN command since 1950. And it's time for the United Nations to become more active in viewing how to transition uh, over time. The comprehensive military agreement between Seoul and Pyongyang, which you uh, just mentioned, in 2018 there was uh, some initial successes uh, with some demining of uh, parts of the demilitarized zone and uh, the removal of some guard posts, etc. But right now the, uh, the CMA is at a standstill. Uh, do you have any ideas for reinvigorating that process? I think that there has to be a resumption of dialogue first between North Korea and South Korea. That's part of what gave the momentum to it. It obviously is a North Korea-South Korea military agreement. But as I said, the United Nations Command was involved in that. And the U.S. was kept apprised of this uh, along the way. Uh, there's some discomfort in the United States, honestly, from a policy perspective as to whether or not the agreement providing these reductions of tension would also equate to a reduction of pressure. In my professional estimation, those two are not the same. So the international pressure that comes from international solidarity, 
preservation and enforcement of sanctions regimes, um, uh, uh, unanimous Security Council resolutions, as we saw in the last two that were passed, that's where the pressure comes from. The tension is what was the great danger of some incident like the shelling of Yongpyongdo or the box mines or artillery exchanges or even the, the exchange of weapons fire just a few weeks ago between the two guard posts reportedly. These are triggers that can suddenly cause an escalation and you might find yourself facing conditions tantamount to war if you can't de-escalate when those things occur. So we wanted to lower the chance of that happening so that the broader pressure and the the sources of diplomatic traction could begin to take their effect. So that this is a, still a question. There's there's still some discomfort on the part of the United States. Therefore, I believe what's necessary is for the U.S. and for United Nations Command to assist South Korea in regaining a dialogue with North Korea. And that might mean some exchanges of certain things to, to happen soon. And from that, then, North Korea can save face and begin to move in a direction of their choice, as they did in the summer of 18. And it was very clear then that when North Korea chooses to go in a certain direction, they can be very professional and very easy to work with. And it was remarkable to have them answer the phone and then agree to a face-to-face meeting, which we hadn't had in years, and then ultimately to lead to the, uh, the one true success that came out of Singapore, and that's the repatriation of those 55 boxes of human remains, which is somewhere on the order of 190 to 200 different individuals from multiple countries. Now, this year was supposed to be the last year of the uh, South Korean government-sponsored Revisit Korea program for the Korean War veterans, but because of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, it doesn't look like it'll happen this year. Uh, What were your own experiences with the program itself and meeting with returning vets? It was absolutely remarkable. What an honor it was to be part of that, and I did every single one of them that I could with the Ministry of Patriots and Veterans Affairs. Uh, I've I've served with many countries around the world. I counted some 88 countries that I've served with their militaries around the world. And in many places where we had been partners in war or even adversaries in war. And there is no country that goes to the extent that the Republic of Korea goes in honoring veterans. I used to hold France in the highest regard, and I still do, uh, for what they do for World War II veterans and even World War I veterans when they were still living. But what South Korea does goes even beyond that. So it was it was remarkable. Those veterans are aging and uh, find difficulty traveling. The number of them in South Korea, though, is phenomenal. The hardihood of those who survived the war. I met with many of them. They'd be in throngs. They're all wearing the same coats and ties and hat. And they still have as much pride as any warrior I've ever met in my life. And so it's really something to be part of something like that. I communicated with a, uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Steve Tharp, who was also heavily involved in that program. And he told me about uh, f- a former actor and uh, Korean War veteran, uh, James McEachin, uh, who you uh, met when he came back for one of those return visit programs recently. It was a very interesting story. I've known him for many years, uh, since my time as the Chief of Army Public Affairs back in 2005 and six. That's when I met him. And uh, I learned about his story and we found that we had a lot in common, including one of the units that he served with in combat in Korea was part of the regiment I commanded a battalion in. And so I invited him because it, it's clear that he still was carrying some burdens from what happened there. And I said, you must come back. South Korea will treat you uh, like the, the royalty that you are as a veteran who defended the Republic of Korea. They'll take excellent care of you. If you're able to travel, 
I'll meet you and I'll carry you back to the demilitarized zone as close to the battlefield where you were wounded as possible. And that's what we did. So we went, and oddly enough, as it turns out, it's near Arrowhead Hill. That's where he was wounded. The very place that North Korea and South Korea have agreed to do a joint exhumation of remains under the Comprehensive Military Agreement. South Korea has continued with that work, and they've been highly successful in the amount of remains that they've recovered. But the American, French, uh, South Korean, and Turkish remains are on the north side of the line. And so ours have not come back because North Korea has not lived up to their side as they went cold after the Hanoi summit. This is a face-saving matter. That would be the first place I'd like to see a resumption of, of, of coordination in the military sphere, is the recovery of remains uh, in the Arrowhead Hill area. But James McEachin fought there, was wounded in action there, received the Silver Star, and uh, he turned 90 yesterday. I sent him a note, and he's just as spry as ever. Wow. Do you think that a similar program should be conducted for service members who have served in Korea in the almost 70 years since the armistice was signed? Well, it would be great if there could be a continuation of the Revisit Korea program uh, like that for the war veterans. Uh, this is why I have joined as a director for the Korea Defense Veterans Association, and it's to reach out to the very group you just described those Koreans and Americans who served in the Republic of Korea and helped to preserve the armistice from 1953 all the way to the present. And uh, there, there's a debt of gratitude that is owed to them. Some of them endured tremendous hardship and combat experiences on the Korean Peninsula. Others engaged in a very different type of preservation of the armistice. Uh, but that's why I'm with them. It's, uh, it's to maintain contact with those groups of Korea defense veterans and to maintain the quality of the alliance. Now, my final question for you today, General, you've been very generous with your time, by the way. Uh, this year is the 70th anniversary, as I mentioned, of the start of the Korean War. Um, many years ago in 1979, in the film Apocalypse Now, a bare-chested Robert Duval played Colonel Kilgore and said the immortal line, someday this war is going to end. What about the Korean War, General? Will it ever end? And how, how do you see it ending? Well, those, those words echo in my mind as an apocalypse now aficionado, so I, ah. I certainly have thought about that. And the answer is yes, someday this war is going to end. Can we find the right route that leads to peace? General Mark Clark, who was at the time the United Nations commander, when he signed the armistice, was very clear about the fact that we should not take any comfort in this event of signing the armistice. It was always intended to be a temporary measure to stop the loss of life until such time as a lasting peace under a peace treaty could be achieved. And these many years, many decades later, we have not found that. And what instead has happened is a perpetuation of armistice. I, I strongly favor finding a way to bring it to an end. And that might mean something like initially, the declaration of the end of hostilities could have value even in North Korea to give the North Korean leadership face, some face to be able to change direction in the eyes of their population, why their policy would need to change. They have to save face to do that after so many years of uh, the propaganda that North Korean people have been fed. And so this is an important step. It could be a useful step. It doesn't, it's not the only way to do this, but it could be a useful step in moving toward a lasting peace. Denuclearization also must be a part of that. But trust building as well must be a part of it. And this is indeed one of the conundrums that uh, I think faces uh, the alliance in, on its way forward. 
the cultural view that South Korea has toward North Korea is different than the view that the United States has toward North Korea from a cultural perspective. Whereas South Korea and North Korea recognize that among actions to demonstrate denuclearization, the building of trust and the, the changing of relationships, among those three, there is a sequence. And in Asia and in Korea, it is you build a new relationship first, then that builds trust, and then you will deliver on the things that you say you will already deliver on. For the U.S., it's exactly the opposite. There must be demonstrated action on the stated purpose, denuclearization in this case, before trust can be gained and before a new relationship can emerge. And this is a very difficult cultural conundrum to work through. And it's my hope that we'll take an enlightened view to that take some risk from the U.S. perspective and maybe go with the South Korean view of what the sequence should be since they know North Korea better than the United States does. That's a, a, a great and a, and a hopeful way uh, to end our conversation today. I want to thank you, General Brooks. It's been an absolute honor and a pleasure to talk to you today. We do hope to, uh, to talk to you again when you uh, come and, and visit Seoul in future, your own uh, return to or revisit Korea. Well, I look forward to that day when that happens. In the meantime, stay safe and thanks for your reporting and thanks for interviewing me today. Oh, General Brooks, one personal question. Um, you're a, a vegan. Is that hard to be a, a soldier and a vegan at the same time? Well, it, it might have been if I'd done it my entire career, but I, I did it from 2013 on, and it was challenging enough, but I had enough, I had enough help. I had some staff help to do meal coordination in advance of a social event with a foreign country to try to work through the issue. We only had a few slip-ups, and I, I remember being in Hanoi, and that, that, that was a slip-up. Oh. <laughs> so uh, we worked our way through it. So it's actually been quite good. Many of my staff ended up doing that as well in the meantime. That's interesting. Maybe you, it could start with you and, uh, and, and grow within the military. I, I find it fascinating. I mean, uh, you know, it's such a, uh, a macho concept. You've got to eat meat and, and all that, but, but you found, you've shown that there's a way without that. That's right. Yeah, so there's, there's good ways to stay nourished. And so I, I tell people, if you want to be able to run as fast as a horse, be as smart as an elephant, be as strong as an ox, you might want to eat like they do. Excellent. That's a, <laughs> a nice summary. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.